my name's Juliet Spare, and welcome to this first podcast produced in collaboration with Ardia International, a specialist human rights consultancy firm. We're in the senior common room at St Mary's University, where I'm currently studying an MA in modern slavery. I'm also joined by three brilliant women who are all contributing in one way or another in the fight against modern slavery and, importantly, improving the lives of victims and survivors. Sitting around the table is Dr Carol Murphy, Deputy Director of the Centre for the Study of Modern Slavery at St Mary's University in Twickenham and author of Report, A Game of Chance, Long-Term Support for Survivors of Modern Slavery. Alison Scohan, Senior Campaigns and Public Affairs Manager at the Co-op and Colleen Theron, CEO of Ardia International. Now, for many survivors, having a job is a key aspect of recovery, helping provide a sense of dignity and belonging. So I'm going to ask Dr. Carol Murphy just to talk a little bit about her recent research paper and the testimonies from other survivors and the interviews with NGOs that contribute to the way you work in tackling modern slavery. Okay, so um, if I start off first of all with the report and I interviewed NGOs and police for this report across the UK and one of the things that really struck me about the testimony from the NGOs was the importance of work for human dignity and for recovery and integration or reintegration. Um, Unfortunately there are lots of barriers uh, towards victims or survivors in achieving that For example, um, some people might not have a very good level of English, they might not have had a very adequate education, Um, they might also, because of the restrictions around people who don't have right to remain, be denied the opportunity to work or engage indeed in any kind of um, education. And that was certainly an issue for some other research I did prior to this where I interviewed um, some survivors about their experiences of the kind of uh, recovery period offered by the UK government and um, especially for people without right to remain that is not just a barrier um, physically in terms of them going out and getting a job or being restricted but actually psychologically it really causes a huge level of trauma because people are very very scared and feel that they can be um, return to their country of origin at the drop of a hat. So I remember one victim in in particular talking about those home office vans um, a few years ago that went around with the camera on top and she saw one in her local area and she was convinced that this van was looking for her. You know, I mean, you you could kind of say that level of paranoia is, is very high, but actually this is somebody who's been through an extremely traumatic experience of being trafficked from a very distant country into the UK and exploited sexually. So um, I think you know the, the Home Office um, don't really take into consideration the actual lived experiences for people. And so the barriers to regaining that sense of dignity um, that need to be taken into consideration and they need to kind of look at how they can facilitate that reintegration. Is gaining that empathy with what the survivor has gone through to even get to the point at which they're able to access the support. 
Um, and that brings us quite nicely on to support and what you can do with survivors. Um, could you tell us a bit about the Bright Futures programme that you uh, work with at the co-op? Yes, um, so uh, Bright Future was, um, it goes back actually about three or four years um, to a discussion between um, uh, a gentleman called David Camp, uh, who was strong together, um, and an inspirational um, character, Phil Clayton, at City Hearts. And the pair of them had a discussion about wouldn't it be great if we could find a business that could provide uh, a pathway into employment for survivors. Um, and the pair of them, uh, I happened to look at upon the co-op as the right kind of business um, uh, to provide that opportunity. I think that says a lot about our heritage, our ethics and our values, um, you know, about treating people fairly, giving people opportunities. So um, Bright Future was born um, from the idea that, you know, what's the most meaningful thing that we can do as a business um, to support victims? It's to provide um, uh, employment. You know, we are a large business. We employ more than 50,000 people in the UK um, and we've done work with other vulnerable groups and we felt that we were really well placed with the support of City Hearts who um, have been you know, particularly innovative in the way in which they have been able to support survivors. Um, so yeah, we played around with the idea, we, we took it very slowly because this was um, uh, a, a new activity for us and it was also um, a very vulnerable group as, as, as Carol suggests, you know, these are individuals who have been through the most horrific experiences. Um, so we, we tri trialled it in a number of our food stores, we trialled it in one of our distribution centres um, up in Merseyside um, and we found that it was an idea that worked. And so what we've done since that time um, is to expand it out to a network of like-minded organisations. You know, we've now got more than 25 charity partners um, who refer victims for placements. Um, we've got 17 business partners who are providing placements. And what we've done is to use our supply chain, so going out to the people who make our sandwiches, Green Call, um, the people who pack um, our meat, people like Two Sisters, but also to other co-op societies because um, you know this felt like uh, something that that we could do collaboratively and cooperatively. Um, you know, modern slavery as an issue is not something the co-op is going to solve. You know. The three of us, four of us in this room today, with the best one in the world and all the enthusiasm, we are not going to solve it. Mm -hmm. So we have to bring in all of those partners um, who have something to add um, and something to contribute. Um, and I think Bright Future, as an initiative, you know, it's had a huge impact on the individuals we've been able to support into employment. But what's really exciting for me is it enables us to tell the story through the experiences of individuals, I've been able to share the experiences with my 50,000 colleagues in the co-op and get them thinking about the issue and, and raising their awareness um, and understanding. And then they raise awareness within their own family. Absolutely, you know, if, if they tell two people and they tell two people, um, then you know, the, the issue will get the prominence it needs. I mean, it, we've done lots of research about public awareness of this issue. Um, and the, the stats are low and they remain low and until we can get the story out about what this is and the fact that it's still happening um, we won't make the breakthrough that, that we need to to put it, um, bring it to an end There's something also quite tangible about employing survivors of modern slavery within the sort of supply chain business that in some parts is almost why people are exploited in the first place. 
Um, and so I think it's really interesting that the co-op has that route for survivors to go through. How, how is that then received, say, on the shop floor by the managers in the shop when they have to sort of say... You know, Julia, it's really funny. The, um, the first few times I went in to talk store managers um, and, and other colleagues within the co-op, I have to admit there was a moment, of a slight eye roll, a slight eyebrow raise, like, why on earth are you going to do that, Alison? Um, yeah, that's going to be really hard. We don't need to do that. But then when you tell the story, and particularly when you get the charities in to talk about what modern slavery is, there is a light bulb moment and people get it and they want to help. And then they become really, really inspired. And I think that's what's fascinating for me about this whole issue is that you go that trajectory from, I don't believe this happens, oh my gosh, this is happening. And then people start to think about what can I practically do? What can I bring to this? And that's not just individuals. I think that's businesses as well. And that's where I'd like to bring you in now, Colleen, in that sort of Ardia International, which leading business beyond compliance. We talk about from sort of the trajectory now onto businesses, what can they do? What can the legislation in the Modern Slavery Act, Section 54... What can it achieve? So, I mean, it's really interesting to at least bring in the conversation about a legislative framework that um, has been put in place, which was to actually drive transparency amongst those businesses that have a certain turnover, to start um, publicly disclosing what steps they are taking to combat modern slavery. Now... That's really critical because for the, for the same reasons that Alison said, you know, when people with, hear about this in the co-op and they actually want to get a hold of it and they want to do something about it, it's the same for many businesses that have been told perhaps because they have a turnover of 36 million and they have to do something about it. It might not necessarily be a light bulb moment unless someone within that business, be it at operational level or be it at board level, has that moment where they go this is happening, this is potentially something that can affect my business and I can do something about it. So going back to your question, you know, what can the law do about it? Well, the current legislation that we have doesn't have very strong enforcement penalties and that has meant that we are seeing businesses falling into a, a divide of those businesses that actually want to do something, that want to go beyond compliance. So, you know, The co-op is a very real example of that. Um, and there are um, a few businesses who are really leading edge in this. But a number of others are just reactive. They're doing the bare minimum and they are um, not looking at perhaps the opportunity that this can raise. So I think that's, you know, when I hear what co-op's doing, when I hear about, you know, victims who are brought through programs and rehabilitated, that is an opportunity. And I think the reason, you know, part of the reason that I feel legislation is really key in getting this right as well is that, you know, business has enormous impact and they have a real power to bring about change if they want to harness what they do for the good of communities. That's really interesting that, again, why do some businesses do it and some don't? I mean, and I guess it's leading by example, which is where the co-op sits at the moment um, in terms of its sort of commitment to programmes and one new commitment is the potential for a summer school at St Mary's is that correct Carol? Yeah that's correct, um, the co-op have 
agreed to uh, part fund this summer school and we're really excited about that. Um, we're hoping that that will be set up in the summer of 2020 and the idea of that came about when I was doing my research and speaking to NGOs in the sector in particular and they identified um, that the summer period can be a really difficult period for survivors because a lot of the FE colleges closed down so a lot of people involved in classes there have nothing to do and, and in that case then they become very much left with the kind of trauma and have nothing to distract themselves from that. Um, so, you know, I thought, well, we've got a campus here, we've got classrooms, we have space, it's an educational facility, why, why couldn't we set up something here? So, drew up a kind of concept for that and um, eventually took that, that to the co-op and spoke to Alison and Paul there and they were really um, excited by the, the project, I think and um, agreed to fund it. So we're, we're going to recruit somebody um, in the next few months to um, take time. And it was really interesting that Alison said that about taking time to set something up properly because I think that's really important for me that we do take the time to set it up properly, look at all the pros and cons, consult all the right people, um, all the partners that we have. We have good relationships with the NGOs in the sector and make sure that the product that we deliver in the end, for want of a better expression, is suitable for what we're trying to achieve. Um, so we're not going to do a one-size-fits-all model. It will be more of a kind of pick and mix and people can pick different modules from this and we're not sure exactly what that's going to be but there will be some English as a second language provision and um, careers advice financial advice you know Alison and other businesses we've spoken to also have ideas about what could be delivered as part of that program. But what, what I think is really interesting is that we will um, part fund um, the summer school and I'm really excited about that but I think what, what's even more powerful and what potentially we can bring to it is, is bringing that network of interested organisations and interested businesses who really want to make a difference in this area. And you know, the powerful thing that, 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 that potentially will happen is you know, people, colleagues who work in HR can provide support on employability, CV writing. Um, one of the other partners um, is looking at financial literacy. Um, and I think, you know, for me... Um, CSR is very much a 20th century concept. In the 21st century, I think what it is to be a responsible business is to look at your operations, your resources, your people. What can you bring to the big social issues that we're facing? And that, I think that's something that the, the, the co-op does really well and I'm really proud of. Sharing and that collaboration. Yeah. No, and I, and I think that, you know, we were talking before this started about, you know, CSR and the kind of idea that it was philanthropic, you did something as a business that was an add-on, whereas, you know, what Alison's pointing out is that the sea change that actually business needs to look at how it is responsible in, in the whole way that it operates. And, you know, going back to what the legislation requires and, and how people make statements and how they behave, you know, actually addressing um, the opportunity to bring about change and addressing things like modern slavery in their business model makes sense when you put it in a broader sustainability or a human rights framework, however you want or however some businesses want to actually um, uh, mark that in terminology. 
but the reality is that it means they can do something more than what the law requires, which is just a simple statement um, saying that they've complied with the Act. I think what's interesting is also that sea change we're sort of talking about now and the sort of emergence of a summer school um, comes from a legacy of campaigning and being um, genuine about wanting to be part of that sea change. And I guess there's a danger that other businesses or organisations wanting to do the same to replicate that model don't come from, don't have as much of a pedigree in sort of realising the issues and therefore there is a danger of the victims or the survivors not being put first because that is what's essential in every aspect of tackling modern slavery, whether you look at it from an organised crime perspective, uh, human rights, it's all about the person involved and seeing that and I think that's essential you're nodding Carol (laughs) yeah I just think it's really interesting because I mean as Colleen said we were speaking earlier on about this and I was saying how important it was for me from my perspective not to reinvent the wheel and there is so much expertise out there from people who've been around this issue for far far longer than I have ever been you know who who were talking about this in the end of the the 20th century never mind the 24th century who've been you you know so you've got all that expertise out there and I just think that that's why doing the report was important for me because I I didn't make this up it came from people out there who were saying this is an issue this is a gap I mean there there is a kind of um other provision in the Northern College run a really fantastic 10 week residential programme up in Sheffield and we've been up there um, to speak to them about their programme and get some ideas from them um, but we have to modify it because this won't be residential so you know we've had lots of input and I think as you say it really is important to um, recognise the people who have the experience and what you said the pedigree in this and really make sure that they're consulted in terms of setting up any kind of new provision in this sector. I think we've, we've reached, you know, I think we should be pleased with, with what we've achieved in terms of the campaigning. You know, I, I lobbied um, on the Modern Slavery Act for the court back in um, 2013, 2014, 2015. Um, and at that time, modern slavery is, as an issue in, in, in the policy community felt to me like it was a bit niche, um, wasn't particularly well known. Certainly the general public didn't know about it. And I think we've made huge progress, you know, as an issue. When I talk to friends and family these days, they know about it. They will tell me about the articles they've read and what they've seen. And it might have been on Coronation Street. So we're making progress, but I worry that we're kind of the trajectory has been good so far. But I worry that we are now in a in a period where where perhaps you know politicians will move on to think about other things. I certainly don't think the government mm. spends enough time thinking about modern slavery at the moment. There is so much more that the Home Office could be doing in terms of making sure Section fifty four is complied with because we know it's not being complied with. We know that you know a lot of uh, government suppliers aren't compliant with the Act, which is shocking. I think there are some stats about. 40% of central government suppliers aren't compliant with the Act. So it's good that um, the Home Office is now thinking about what well, the government's going to produce its own modern slavery statement, um, but it's long overdue. Yeah. 
And I, no, I, I think that's absolutely right. That you know, we were talking about that as a concern as well. You know, before um, doing the podcast, is is really looking at where businesses are at, and it goes back to the point that I think I was making earlier that you know you find that there are some businesses that are really um, behind this that um, you know the co-op is leading example Marks and Spencer some of the others that are really driving things forward but there's such a need still for proper education around what the impact is for businesses and their supply chain because you know what I'm seeing with a lot of businesses and that's not just you know FTSE 50 um, smaller businesses SMEs is that the, we're still facing the issue where there's a lot of silo working so procurement doesn't talk to HR HR doesn't talk to legal compliance legal compliance doesn't talk to the CEO what that means is you don't then have a unified understanding of the issue as it relates to your particular business and then you don't see the opportunity of what that means to work together to make a change and and you know those are the things that still need to be tackled because the you know the government has brought out an independent review of section 54 um, the final report hasn't been published there have been some very strong recommendations that were brought across by a number of experts. Um, you know, we were, Audia was part of, um, as, as probably was Alison and Carol, other people bringing evidence to the Parliament on the issue. Um, but it's going to be a question of whether the government feels that they will take those recommendations on board and strengthen the legislation so that for those businesses who don't see this as an opportunity or something that they really want to do that they'll have to do. How can businesses see being compliant and being transparent as an opportunity? For lots of different reasons. I think that, you know, the first is 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 your reputation. You know, just ensuring doing the right thing will enhance your reputation. But I think the other really cool thing, which is again something we spoke about beforehand, was who is coming to the fore in employment? We're dealing with a different generation. The generations that are coming through now are the millennials and who are the others? Generation X. Gen- yeah, them. And <laughs> so they, you know, these generations of, of younger people are looking to work with businesses that um, reflect their values and that they want to actually align themselves with. And and I mean, I read some figures, there's a massive shortage of skills amongst um, uh, the globally. So, you know, fighting for the really best people is going to become core. And for businesses to actually become transparent, to take proactive steps in doing the right thing, I think it's going to be really critical for, for future employment. I think one of the things that we... Um we hoped for when the Modern Slavery Act or the bill as was was discussed was that businesses would produce statements and consider their approaches on modern slavery and that consumers would actively choose which business to shop with um, or to do business with on the basis of their track record on this issue. Um, you know, I, I, I kind of believed that at the time yeah. and I thought that you know, we would get to a point where, where it would be a selling point to consumers. I don't feel like we're there yet, um, and I don't think we can wait for consumers to push businesses to do the right thing. We as a business community need to do the right thing, and you know, the 
intends or, or lead, tries to lead by example to encourage other businesses to do the right thing um, in terms of this issue. But um, why, why do you think consumers have been slow to respond to a company's process when it comes to the potential exploitation of another human being? I, no, Julia, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of hoping for the light bulb moment. I, 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 I almost wish that you know we had David, the equivalent of David Attenborough to do it on this issue. Mm-hmm. You know, if you talked to me um, ten years ago about plastics, I would have thought you know yes, we need to do something about it. But but you know, Blue Planet, it was that moment. It kick-started the you know, it fired up the imagination of the general public. Um, I guess we need something like that to happen on this. Um, it's really fascinating, you know, watching you know, every other drama program on television mm. this week has a trafficking storyline, um, which in some ways is great, but it almost feels like it, I don't know. Are we almost at a normalisation yeah. of it? And, it feels and, like it dilutes it almost yeah. in some mm. way. But I, I do think mm. it's interesting what you're saying about the kind of uh, David Attenborough, Blue Planet thing, because it made me think about the, the kind of importance of stories mm. and narratives. So on the Blue Planet, you see the story of the turtle that's got caught in the plastic mm. bottle. Yeah. And, you know, so you, you do see the narrative. And I think, you know, when, when we talk about, um, you know, William Wilberforce and transatlantic slavery and so on, there was a lot of uh, arguments to say that the narratives told by former slaves were very powerful in terms of changing people's minds. I'm not sure mm. if that would work in the 21st century, um, but I do think that there... It, it needs to it almost feels like there needs to be a kind of two pronged approach where you've got the businesses doing um their piece and then you've got NGOs and other people talking about the the, the victim stories and survivors themselves participating in raising awareness to another level about the realities of their uh, situation. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. I don't disagree with any of those points, and I think I've had you know similar t- dilemmas as Anderson, thinking why has this not changed? I mean, many years ago, I took part in um, a modern slavery garden that was done at the Chelsea Flower Show, which was you know created for the very reason of what we're talking about to try and get um, consumers, be that of flowers and beauty, to really think about you know who were the people that might have you know, mined the stones that comes into your gardens or created the, the, the steel for the fencing and that kind of thing. But I think that as part of this conversation, we can't lose um, sight of the impact of good legislation either and proper enforcement because, you know, I was also part of the lobbying for the Act many years ago and there was such a strong... There was, again, two divisions. Some businesses really wanting to push for strong enforcement and very much the government's view which was no this needs to be voluntary and we will get consumers behind this and it will be the consumers that will change it well you know do you four think years that was a down, mistake do you think actually then it should have been no we will yeah. lead by example and we can't wait for consumers and do you think we'd be further along than we are now well, I think there's lots of different arguments. There's lots of different views on that. But certainly, you know, coming back to the point that good legislation does impact, I, I think that that needs to be part of the mix. It's the same as, you know, the, the conversation around what is um, the role of government in this. You know, we can't, we can't operate um, societies that are fair without a rule of law. So we need government input that's fair, but we need legislation that I think is also, you know, 
might drive change because, and I say this because of my experience of working as an environmental lawyer. When I started working as an environmental lawyer, there was very little legislation around recycling and waste and energy man management. When that legislation started coming to the fore and there were penalties attached to it, that's when business behaviour started changing quite radically. So, you know, and, and, and we're in a different place with the environmental issues around, you know, managing those issues. So I just do think that, unfortunately, there perhaps needs to be, you know, much a strengthening of the legislative frameworks and not just here but globally because where things fall down as we know is you might have strong legislation in one place very weak legislation or no enforcement in countries where maybe the abuse of people is higher and and that means we don't see any changes you are listening to the first podcast produced in collaboration with Ardia International and joining us around the table is Dr Carol Murphy, Colleen Theron and Alison Scohen. We are talking about modern slavery and what businesses can do, what they are doing and what NGOs, academics and governments can do to support survivors better. One question I want to ask um, all of you is really... Why do you do what you do? I mean, there's that pedigree we mentioned earlier of being involved in the campaign to make survivors' lives better. Um, but there's obviously a reason that you're interested in this issue that isn't, is no longer a niche issue. It is in danger, maybe, of becoming normalised and potentially ignored by those who jump on the bandwagon to also be part of the movement. But whilst we have the background and the expertise that Carol mentioned of people who go decades and decades and decades back, their voices still need to be heard, as do all of yours. And that's why I'm delighted you're here. But Alison, I'll start with you. Tell me why you do what you do. I... I'm very lucky in many ways, you know, I'm, um, I work for a great company, I actively chose to work for the co-op because it's a really interesting, ethical, values-driven organisation, um, but I didn't know anything about this issue, you know, to me, slavery was something that happened hundreds of years ago, it didn't happen anymore, and when I got asked to work on, on the Lobbying for Modern Slavery Act, I um, kind of thought, why on earth am I doing this? And it's been a journey for me, um, but it became most powerful and most potent when we started talking about the impact upon survivors, because I hadn't really thought about people <laughs> or the impact that it had on individuals. And then it's that light bulb moment, that realisation of, you know, this is the most fundamental injustice that an individual, that can happen to an individual. Um, and then when you delve behind the stories of, of how it happens... You know, this is not... These are individuals who, through circumstances, who, through bad luck, end up in the most horrific um, uh, situations. And it's very rare in your career that you have an opportunity, in your life, that you have an opportunity to, to, to fundamentally change other people's lives. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of a happy alignment of 
of, of working for a business that cares about this kind of thing. Um, but just being able to, you know, draw on everything that I've learned over the course of the last 20 odd years working um, to really make a change. Um, so just genuinely excited and, and delighted and, and really proud to be able to play a part in, 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 in this campaign. Carol, um, well, first of all, Alison, I, I think you are very lucky, um, and I think it's it's amazing, and I think that that journey um, that you've been on is 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 really important to tell other people of, of that journey, so that they can actually see that making a change is tangible, and that other businesses, it, it, you know, it's enjoyable to make a change. And working for a business that wants to make a change goes back to what Clean was saying with Generation X. You know, my nieces and nephews who are striking for the climate, you know, it's the eight-year-olds yeah. who work, are going to make work, making those decisions. Work, daily, your daily work, your career, doesn't just need to be about you. It can be about the impact that you can make on society. And there are some businesses out there that enable people to do that. And as, as Colleen and I were talking about earlier on, you know, this is the, the generation that will choose businesses. Where do I want to work? Which organisation will I give my time to? Um, I won't just accept the, um, the, you know, the paycheck at the end of the month. I want to do work for a business that aligns with my values um, and, and, and my, my you know, sense of justice. Mm. I think that's probably a really good place for me to come in, actually, because I think for me... Um, particularly around the game of chance report for me it's about injustice and I think that um, you know whilst the British government have been fantastic and they brought in the Modern Slavery Act and you know Theresa May called it groundbreaking at the time and it's, it was really highly welcomed and, and so on and so forth the provisions for survivors do not go far enough the 45 days in the NRM, even the kind of recently introduced six months uh, post-NRM drop-in mm. and so on, it just doesn't go far enough. And that was one of the key recommendations that came out of my report. Um, and, you know, supporting Lord, Lord McCall's Modern Slavery Bill through Parliament and his Free for Good campaign that goes along with that is to, to recognise that 45 days is not long enough for people mm to recover and be rehabilitated and I say that with a bit of caution because people will have different experiences of exploitation of, of modern slavery and so some people just want to go out and get a job again um, particularly men and so there's, there's all sorts of gender issues in there that need to be looked at as well so I, as an academic I think it kind of um, Sometimes I think the research is almost historically you're supposed to have a kind of balanced um, argument about two sides of the argument, you know, and that, that, you know, it would be my attempt if I'm writing academically, but there are some things that I feel need a stronger voice. And so the injustice for me of the way in which people are not supported to a full rehabilitation and integration back into society, whether that is through gaining a job that gives them back human dignity or an education. For some people, they are so traumatised, it might just be about living day-to-day -day and managing day-to-day. -day. Um, the, the, the government cannot 
just introduce a piece of legislation and then hope for the best and hope that the NGOs will fill the gaps. They have to do more. Mm. They have to give people at least one year um, access mm. to support. Mm. You're, well, we all concur. Um, it's a very, you know, you can hear the passion in your voice mm. uh, going from the sort of social justice to the injustice. And I guess it goes again to it's not just a piece of paper and the importance of legislation matching up, Colleen. Yeah, I mean, and it's, you know, I, I always love hearing um, from people like Alison, Carol, you know, there aren't many people who have a real passion and drive for change. I mean, from my own personal journey, I, I'm, I was lucky enough to, at a very young age, decide I wanted to be a lawyer. And part of that drive was because I um, had a very strong sense, even as a child, about injustice and how do you strive to work for justice. Um, how I got involved with uh, the whole issue around modern slavery was I was working for a business, I was invited to a conference where um, at the Legatum Institute for the first time I ever heard the terms modern slavery, human trafficking and I was absolutely appalled and I felt on a personal level, I could not leave without um, trying to find a means of using my own skill set to try and address the issue. And and that's really where I started, got involved. We set up an NGO um, many years ago, started doing some real campaigning and looking at um, this as an issue. And then it just sort of fell naturally to, I guess, my other passion, which is, you know, I, I love working with business. I love working with organisations because within business and organisations are people that often care, that want to see change, that want to, to do something differently. And so, you know, becoming part of, I guess, um, a number of voices to try and instil a sense of change and or need for change, not a change, but a need for change with um, regards to this issue is it's just, you know, part of the reason why I'd say I almost have not given up where I felt there'd been times as as running a, a business as a, a, a woman as well, it's been really tough to do. But it's it's when you meet with a victim and you've been to a place where someone has had the opportunity to reach their potential or make a step forward to reaching their potential. That's what's got to be worth it. That's what's got to be why we, we do this. Because without that, where do you leave people? I think this is a natural end to this podcast that we're recording in the senior common room at St Mary's in Twickenham. But before we do our final thanks to Fran and Parker, who's produced this for us, um, is there any messages any of you would like to give to the modern slavery movement community who I hope will listen to this and others who could benefit from hearing what you all have to say? I think um, Colleen, I share Colleen's frustrations and doubts and, and, and sometimes it feels really, really hard and it feels like you're being pushing that, that ball up the hill and it keeps rolling back down again. But actually, you know, if we think back to Wilberforce, yeah. um, you know, how long did it take them? Um, it, it, you know, it, it took many, many years to generate change, to drive mm. change. Um, and, and ultimately, you know, 
we have to carry on. We have to carry on chipping away every person that we talk to, every event that we speak at, every activity, every march we go on, because Colleen and I marched on number 10 um, in the Home Office a couple of weeks ago. It all makes a difference, mm. um, so we just have to keep, mm. keep going. Absolutely. No, I just wanted to go to add to that. You know, I think um, a friend of mine who does incredible work in India, um, working with communities um, in Assam in the tea gardens to raise awareness around human trafficking. Um, you know, we sat down one day, and one of the things you know, Pratiba always said to me is that when you are ploughing, when you are pioneering, it is much more tough to break the ground than it is to follow what's being ploughed and to walk in that. And I often think of that. I think, you know, it is that moment of ploughing when you're marching, when you're standing up, when you're talking, when you're encouraging. And, and actually, I think I don't want, you know, to leave this podcast on a sense of a downer. I think, you know, what, what we need to go back to is what was said at the beginning when we sat here, what Alison said, Carol said, you know, actually, this... There's been tremendous change. You know, where we were eight years ago is not where we are now. And that is what's encouraging. And also finding like-minded people because I think passion breeds passion. Iron sharpens iron. That's what you need. You need to be, you know, amongst people that share the ideology and share the stories and are prepared to keep going. Okay, so, yeah... um, Somebody said to me, somebody in the know, and I quote in the know, said to me recently, you know, Lord McCall's bill is not going to get through. And in that moment, it was like a a kick in the gut. But but straight after that, I thought, "You, you are not going to stop me or put me off track by telling me things like that. Because actually, we said we wouldn't mention Brexit, but I'm going to say it. The government is completely consumed, obviously, with Brexit. But actually, there is a future. And we are going to keep on campaigning for that kind of bill and for the changes that need to be made in pieces of legislation. I'm going to end it there. And I think that was a great place to finish. And thank you for your empowering, passionate and brilliant words for this podcast um, and again my thanks to Fallon Parker for producing it you've been listening to the first podcast in collaboration with Media Vispa and RDA International